Welcome to Lead Her Life Podcast. I'm Natasha. And I'm Dee. Our goal with this podcast is to inspire, entertain, and help you lead your life by sharing our stories and speaking with other empowered female leaders. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Lead Her Life. This week, we are joined by Nicole Pinn, who is a registered dietitian at the University of Waterloo. We ask Nicole all of our nutrition questions from intermittent fasting, intuitive eating, diet fads, eating at restaurants, and so much more. Nicole also shares some advice on treating yourself and how to get your kids to eat a balanced diet. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you so much for being on the Lead Her Life podcast. Why don't we start? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where did you go to school? And how did you get started in the field of nutrition and becoming a registered dietitian? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I would say that as far as how I became a registered dietitian and got into the field of nutrition, you know, it's just one of those things that it happened. Growing up, I always loved being in the kitchen and baking with my mom and experimenting, trying new things. Um, and then, you know, you get to a certain age and that question comes up, what do you want to be? What do you want to do with post-secondary education? And I, I looked at my options and I thought, well, I like science, but I also like being creative. And, you know, as I was applying to programs, I figured, well, May as well see what nutrition's all about. And I'd kind of been curious about nutrition, I'd say, through high school. And once you get into an applied science program like the dietetics ones that they offer, it is very much streamed to end up uh, with a nutrition degree and kind of follow that pathway. So that's kind of how it started off. And at first, I'd say my career went a little bit sideways because I didn't graduate from school and get an internship right away. I worked for a year and even after I did my internship and master's I didn't get a job as a dietitian right away. So I think a lot of people have this idea that you just go to school and that's that's it you're a dietitian but there are a lot of different pathways and a lot of different kind of bumps and valleys that you will go through before you kind of get there for most of most of the dietitians out there. That kind of leads me into another question that we have, which is we like to talk to women in different career paths, different journeys, and being a registered dietitian, I'm sure there's different paths that you can take. And so can you speak to that of just, you know, you you work in food services at a university, but what are the other paths that someone could take if that was something they're interested in? Sure. So I think being a dietitian, a lot of times people have this image in their mind that, you know, it's that community dietitian that sees you and talks to you about food and helps you figure out what to eat for perhaps a certain condition like diabetes or heart disease. And maybe there's one in your doctor's office, but there's actually a lot of different things that you can do with a nutrition degree. So you can go into that community role um, and do that type of one-on-one counseling and practice you can work in higher education and you can be an educator. 
you can go into clinical dietetics. So in clinical dietetics, most of the time you're doing a lot more medical things. You're focusing more on the math of it all, I would say. Um, when you're working with people, a lot of times they're unconscious or they're unwell. Perhaps you're writing prescriptions to feed them intravenously and you know doing things along those lines. You're looking at labs and blood work and making sure that what you're doing doesn't uh, isn't contraindicated with any of their IV medications or um, hydration. And then there's the whole food service industry. And even within food services, I mean, I work in a role that is partially community-based because I do work with students and I do um, you know, lots of different media things, but there are food service dietitians that work strictly in a hospital kitchen, or they work a lot more in the financial aspect of it, or they even work as an industry consultant. So it's, while people kind of have this image in their mind, most of the time that dietitians are the person that you see at your doctor's office or in the community if you're having trouble with nutrition, it's not always the case. You can actually do a lot of really interesting things. And sometimes people who go into undergrad with the thought that they're gonna be a dietitian end up going into other assets of the hospitality industry. They become a chef or they end up being a doctor or something else. Interesting. Yeah, I love that there's so many different things you can do with nutrition and food. It's like so, so diverse. I love it. And then thinking about somebody who might be deciding to be a registered dietitian or go into the nutrition field, what advice would you give them if they were thinking about this field? I think I would just say, you know, go ahead and explore it. Just because you're curious now doesn't mean that even if you got a degree that you found out later it wasn't for you, that it, education is would ever be lost. Um, I remember growing up, my mom would always say, any education you do is never lost. And I totally think that that is so valuable that, you know, it's something that you can explore and go on this journey and it's going to help build your character of who you are. If you have the opportunity to talk to someone who is in a nutrition program or you know someone who's a dietitian or you can shadow them for a day, that's always a really great way to just kind of explore new career paths and see if it's the right fit for you as well. I know even in my internship, I shadowed dietitians in areas that I didn't have a chance to really work in quite a bit and it helped me just to see what I enjoyed and, and what aspects I didn't enjoy so that I could continue to shape my career around the things that I really liked about dietetics. That is, that's cool. I think for, for both Deanna and I, like for me personally, I have struggled with losing weight, I guess. I always kind of had an image in my head of I want to be this certain weight. And I was going to the gym all the time. Like I was, it was a habit where I was going at least five times a week and usually around two hours a day, but I was always plateaued at a certain weight. And then during the first lockdown, I was like, I kind of have to get this, you know, back in order. And what I actually found was not just, I was working out probably less in terms of time, but I was working out more consistently. But then I also had an opportunity to include nutrition as part of the whole, the whole picture. And so for someone who is on that similar path, they're stuck at a plateau point, but they believe that they have a little bit more to lose. What, uh, what types of changes can that person make in their nutrition to optimize their workout and optimize their diet? 
Yeah, so I'll try and get it all, but if I miss something, just let me know. So the first thing I would say is absolutely 100% when it comes to your, you know, that holistic view of health and wellness, um, what you put in your body and the way that you move your body absolutely go hand in hand. So it makes sense that if you're paying attention or you're, you know, you're being intentional about the way you move your body and also being intentional about the way that you nourish your body, that you're, you're, you know, you're going to feel better or you may see um, some of those positive benefits. The other thing that I think is really important to recognize is that our bodies have a certain set point. So a lot of times people like to set goals around a specific number on a scale and or looking at, you know, a certain weight that they want to be. And I really ask people to question more, what does your relationship with movement and your body and nutrition look like right now? And what do you want that relationship to look like? So kind of rejigging it to be more of that holistic view of what is wellness to you versus trying to hone in on it has to be this many minutes of a workout or this many hours or, you know, this many calories or this number on a scale because a lot of those things we, we actually don't have that much control over and your set point in your body is more genetically determined than anything. Not to say that we can't have some, you know, influence over our, our wellness and our health through nutrition and through activity, but it's a lot less than people realize. And when you take that step back and stop trying to focus on it so much and allow yourself to really um, just experience the, the benefits and focus on the way that you feel when you move your body in a joyful way or the way that you feel when you nourish your body in a great way, it becomes a more of a long-term sustainable pattern. Right. And, and to follow up on that as well, are there differences in gender? Do you find that men need to fuel their body a different way than women? Yeah, that's a great question. Everybody needs to fuel their body <laughs> a different way than another. There's certainly, you know, differences in the way that our body makeup is as, as far as muscle and fat and those sorts of ratios between men and women. And one of the other things you mentioned was just about fueling workouts. And the other thing that comes into play is obviously that pre and post workout nutrition. So I don't think I answered that part of your question earlier, but that absolutely <laughs> plays a role in your recovery process in, you know, if you're working on muscle building or any of those sorts of things. So it really does become a very individualized process and that's where if you have really targeted goals for some reason perhaps you're an athlete it it can be very helpful to speak to a dietitian one-on-one -on -one and have that individualized approach great okay and building off that a little bit more what do you see as some of the biggest myths when it comes to nutrition like you maybe see people following this advice that they saw on the internet about <laughs> if they're working out this many minutes a day or this many hours a day that they need this much calories or what are some of those myths between the connection between exercise and nutrition? I think the biggest myth I see out there that gets continuously recycled I'd say in diet culture is that there are good foods and bad foods for your body. There's no one food that's inherently good or inherently bad unless you are allergic or have a severe intolerance to something. Um, you know, there, there's not foods that are, are good for us and foods that are bad for us. It all exists in this realm of balance, I would say. Yeah. I can definitely connect with that and just changing that. I feel like it's such a huge mindset thing, like labeling foods as good or bad. Like 
chocolate or ice cream, but I think we can all have those foods in moderation, right? Absolutely. You know, those foods, when we allow ourselves to enjoy those foods in moderation and we don't put any rules and restrictions around them, studies have shown that people actually eat them less because as soon as you say, no, I can never have this, (laughs) you're creating this environment where as soon as it's available, you're going to want to eat a whole bunch of it because you've, you've been deprived. More often than not, that's not always the case, but most of the time we see that sort of pattern happening. So if you kind of liberalize your diet in the sense that chocolate is not off limits and you allow yourself permission to enjoy it when you feel like enjoying it, then you're going to find that, you know, maybe you just need a square here or a square there. And maybe when you first start to do it, you eat a whole chocolate bar, you know, once a week because you're really excited about chocolate, but that goes away and the novelty of it kind of goes away. Or it's a family-sized bag of mini eggs like I did in a sitting, but Easter's over, thankfully. Um, what, <laughs> what's your opinion on cheat meals? Is there such thing as a cheat meal? I think the question is more, why do you feel the need to have a cheat meal? Is it because you're following one of those diets you found on the internet? Is it because you're restricting yourself and not kind of allowing yourself to just enjoy foods for the fact that they're foods and they have a place in your life? So I usually use, you know, if I'm, if I'm seeing a client or, or someone is telling me about cheat meals, I usually question a little bit deeper about, so what is your relationship with food and, and why does it feel like this has to be um, a cheat meal or kind of classified in that way, as opposed to just being, this is a dinner meal that I have sometimes. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Okay, another kind of fad right now and that I've started to read a lot about, and maybe it's not a fad, I don't know, but is intermittent fasting. And it sounds like from what I've read, there are some real benefits to to your digestion for going a period of time without eating. Um, What are your views or opinions on intermittent fasting and should we do it? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, The first time I had someone bring up intermittent fasting to me was probably about three or four years ago now. So It's one of those things that seems to be sticking around Um, (laughs) as far as if it's a fad or not, I'm not sure because it it seems to be sticking around for a little while. There's a lot of, I'd say, emerging research around intermittent fasting, but not enough that we have right now to absolutely say that it's good for someone or bad for someone. I don't think we can holistically say that. Generally speaking, if you're looking at intermittent fasting for weight loss in particular, which a lot of people look at it for that reason, it follows the same rationale that most diets do in in that you are eating less calories, you're consuming less, and that's why, you know, if you follow it, you do lose weight on it. The other thing that comes to play when it comes to intermittent fasting is whether or not you are the person that it works for. If you're doing, you know, a time-restricted fast, which is the most common one. There are a number of different fasting diets out there, but the time-restricted one is where you have a certain window of eating. So perhaps that's eight hours in a day. And then you have a certain window of fasting, perhaps that's 16 hours. And some of that time you would be sleeping. If you're someone who wakes up and you always skip breakfast, then maybe having an eating period from noon to 8 p.m. isn't that far of a stretch. But if you're someone like me that wakes up at seven o'clock in the morning ready to eat, then you're really not listening to your true hunger and fullness cues and it can have you know more detrimental effects on your metabolism and i'd say on your mood so i if you are interested in fasting 
my biggest recommendation would be to work with a dietitian who is there to support what your goals are. You want to work with somebody who says who's going to give you the evidence and give you the research, but also help you to achieve your goals in the healthiest way possible for you. I think it is important before you consider any sort of approach, fasting in particular, to consider what kind of a person you are and what it is that you're hoping to achieve out of that. So Deanna, you had mentioned digestion. And as far as digestion goes, I'd say I haven't seen a lot of research to support that intermittent fasting supports digestion. And maybe that's something that I need to look into more as a professional. You know, what is the latest research on intermittent fasting and digestion to see where is the link or where is this information coming from? Is it credible? Is it reliable? Yeah, and one more question that I just thought of is that I've heard that the only studies for intermittent fasting have been done on men. Do you know if that's true or not? I don't know if that's true. My instinct says probably not at this point because it has been around for a little while. Um, And also we have, have, I I guess it's not like technically research data, but people have been fasting for millions of years or you know, people fast for a number of reasons that are not diet related. Think of Ramadan, for example. So we do have some knowledge of fasting and what happens to people when they fast. So interesting. It is. And I could never, I could never fast. Like I wake up at seven and I eat and I'm just eating all day until I go to bed at 10 or 11. (laughs) So my mom is actually on the intermittent fasting train right now and she's going like 16 to 18 hours. Oh my goodness. I "I don't know how you do it. But she said she's like, it's actually not hard for her. She's like, it's, it's working for her. And I think it goes back to what you were saying, Nicole. It's like, if it works for you, great. But like, if it doesn't work for your body, then listen to your body, right? Yeah, and the majority of the studies out there are more short term, like a few months long. And what's interesting from what I've read, and I haven't done a full literature review, so I I can only say about what I know so far, a lot of people drop out. And I think the reason is that it's not an approach that really works holistically for everyone because nutrition is so individualized. And there are certain populations that would absolutely would not work for. For example, if you're a diabetic who is on insulin and other medications and you need a steady blood sugar throughout the day, fasting's probably not for you. If you have any sort of history of extreme dieting, disordered eating, and eating disorder, probably intermittent fasting isn't right for you. If you are the person like Natasha and I who wakes (laughs) up in the morning ready to get going, probably not for us. And that's, that's what's really interesting about some of the different approaches that exist out there. And then just to build off of that, other fad diets such as keto and paleo, do you have thoughts on those diets? Like to me, I, I've always been skeptical of keto just because I see what is on the list of things that they can eat. And it's like bacon for breakfast every morning. And maybe that's wrong. Maybe I'm not. That's not accurate. But have you dealt with those types of diets? Yeah, so keto for sure is one that I think is very unrealistic for people to follow long term and that we know there's not really benefits for individuals as far as health goes. 
a lot of times people lose weight and what they're losing is a lot of water weight and it isn't uh, you know a very very restrictive diet it's very high fat uh, there is some protein in it but extremely low carbohydrate which can have dangers long term as far as you know your health and your nutrition you're not necessarily getting all of the micronutrients that you need on a regular basis so your body can function um, your body is really good at adapting and functioning for a short period of time with that but long term people can't sustain it and you know one of the reasons people can't sustain it is one because it is so restrictive but two our bodies are really smart so they're going to start to crave those nutrients that it's missing great yeah yeah i just i it's always been strange to me and i mean personally if i cut out carbs i just my it's a total mood changer for me i cut out well i cut out gluten for example for a month once and it, I ended up having more energy at the end of the month, but what happened was when I introduced carbs back in, I was so, or not carbs, sorry, but gluten, I was so sick. And I felt bad for my mom because I was just, from the first of the month to the end of the month, I was the meanest person. So I found out that doesn't work for me. <laughs> but then also the other thing that I, this is ridiculous, but I have the worst like final meal mentality when I go to a restaurant. I am convinced every time I go to a restaurant, it's the last meal I'm ever going to eat. So I have to get burgers and fries or whatever unhealthy thing is on the menu. And so maybe for people who have made changes with their diet during this time of COVID, or maybe they're looking to do it in the future and when they're going back to restaurants, what kind of a foods should they avoid at restaurants? What what tips and tricks do you have for people eating at restaurants? Yeah, so I think, you know, you can absolutely go to a restaurant and just get the burger and fries and enjoy it um, and say, you know what, this is the meal <laughs> I want to enjoy. But if you find yourself going to restaurants frequently or you're, you're in the place mentally where you, where you want to make a decision that's going to make you feel really good perhaps physically you don't feel great after burgers and fries or you know you want to stick to a certain sort of goal i'd say that there are a few different things that i like to suggest so one is looking for protein options so you want to make sure that um, particularly if you're ordering a meal that whatever you're ordering has a satisfying protein if you want it to be a leaner choice you can look for something that's grilled or baked or broiled versus something that's perhaps deep fried you want to opt for any sort of kind of dressings or sauces on the side if that's something that you are interested in, you know, having more control over how much you're adding to your dish. Right. You want to look at if there's an opportunity to add vegetables. So can you get a veggie side dish or can you ask them to swap out something for a vegetable? And the last thing is you can look for a whole grain option. So if there's the opportunity to get the whole wheat wrap versus the white one, you're gonna get more fiber and more nutrients from the whole grain option. So a lot of times um, when I've spoken to people who are perhaps in corporate jobs where they're grabbing lunch out every day, these are the kinds of suggestions I make because while you may wanna eat a burger and fries once in a while or when you go out for dinner with your friends, if you're grabbing lunch on the run every single day or you're traveling quite frequently for work, you may not feel great um, always making those choices. Yeah, and I will say that's that's a great point. And I think for me, I sometimes I don't feel great after I eat that. And I, at the time that I'm ordering, I'm so hungry that I don't think about 
after dinner and then when I finish that burger and french fries it's not so much guilt as like actually just doesn't feel right as in I feel like I have a stomach ache <laughs> for sure and I would also say um you know it is it is hard to think straight and make decisions that perhaps are beneficial for our body or that make us feel good if we're that hungry showing up at a restaurant. So um, particularly when it comes to like holiday meals and that sort of thing, have a snack a couple hours before you're going out to dinner. And that way you may find that if you're not ravenous, that you're able to kind of look at the menu and make an informed choice that you know is going to feel good in that moment. Amazing. Such good advice. Switching gears a little bit. So Natasha and I, we both have a bunch of nieces and nephews. Well, I have a bunch of nephews. Natasha has one of each. (laughs) And sometimes we know it's hard to get kids to eat healthy foods. And so what advice do you have for parents who might be struggling with getting their kids to eat healthy foods or what, what they claim are healthy foods? Great question. So I would say the biggest thing is don't force them. If you are trying really hard to get your kid to do something, it's going to backfire. This is just the way the child's mind works. If you say don't touch it, they're going to touch it. If you say you have to eat your broccoli before you get your ice cream or your dessert, they are going to throw the broccoli and they're going to be upset and you, you may find yourself in a in a tantrum situation. Not always, but it does happen. There's a great practice around division of responsibility when it comes to child feeding. And what it is, is that the adult decides what is being served, when the meal time and snack time is, and where the meal is happening. So we have lunch at noon at the table, and today we're having mac and cheese with broccoli and apple slices, let's say. So that's my job as the parent. The child decides whether or not they want to eat it, what foods they want to eat, and how much. So... By doing that, we're not creating, we're creating an environment where children are free to explore flavors and tastes. And maybe the first time you serve the meal, the only thing the child eats is the mac and cheese. Maybe the fifth time you serve it, the only thing the child eats is the mac and cheese. But lo and behold, if broccoli keeps showing up and that behavior, because children are so impressionable of seeing other people eat the broccoli and enjoy it, is going to have an influence on them and eventually they may just try it if you just leave it there without comment and allow them to eat it in their own space and time. One of the best suggestions I can say is always make sure there's at least one food on the plate that you know the child likes. So, you know, if it's three brand new foods going on a plate and they're all touching, probably not going to be the best case scenario. You want to maybe put the food separately. But if you introduce one new food at a meal, that shouldn't be a problem as long as there's no pressure that they have to try it or they have to eat it. And how important is diet or or children's nutrition for their development? Yeah, so there are definitely certain nutrients that come into play, in particular when it comes to infant and child nutrition, things like iron, getting enough healthy fats, getting a well-balanced diet. So presenting lots of different types of foods and textures of foods, as well as the early introduction of allergens, which we know the research has changed. It used to be that we held off on allergens for a certain period of time, and now research has shown that we want to introduce them early and make sure that children have those exposure opportunities to reduce allergen risk. That being said, I've also seen a lot of research to support that kids actually are very intuitive and their bodies will tell them what they need. So as long as we're providing the nourishing meals and the appropriate 
meal times and portion sizes. They're going to eat what they want to eat, but their, their body will naturally regulate that. So you, we don't need to worry. I think parents worry a lot more than they need to about kids' nutrition. If there is some reason, you know, you find your child is extremely picky, you're concerned they may not be getting enough or the right kinds of foods, that's an opportunity to talk to your pediatrician, perhaps to work with a dietitian who specializes in toddler or infant nutrition or picky eating because there could be something else going on. But most of the time, parents are doing just fine. Cool. I had a next question for you, but I'm going to mix it up a little bit. Um, (laughs) So we haven't talked a whole lot about your role at the university, Nicole, and I know it's an interesting and unique role as a registered dietitian to work with university students and work directly within food services. And so I would just love to know, like, what are you really excited about right now about nutrition, working at a university, the projects you're working on? What lights you up and motivates you? Oh, that's a good question. And that's really tough right now. Like a year into COVID, our department has had so many ups and downs. I think what really excites me every single day is just the new projects and the new opportunities that come up. I love always having a new challenge on the table. Um, Right now I'm working on a food allergy policy with a group of dietitians across Canada that we're trying to launch as a framework for institutions to use across the board. So that feels really exciting to me. At the same time, I had a really great meeting about our our website and food services and our social media posts for the fall and some of our nutrition spotlights that we wanna do and that makes me really excited. Uh, So any opportunity I have just to talk about and integrate nutrition, I love being able to find ways just to kind of solve problems and to provide information and help and support. So I think those sorts of things really, really make me feel intrinsically good. One of the best feelings I ever, I don't think you can replicate this feeling, is when you work on something and someone comes back to you and says, that helped or I learned something or thank you, that was valuable. So anytime I've ever done a presentation to a staff group, anytime I've met with a student one-on-one, anytime, um, you know, anything has happened in our department and someone's come back and said, what you did was helpful to me, that is the best intrinsically satisfying feeling, I think, in the world. (laughs) That's wonderful, it's, yeah. So good to hear. Um, Just before we get into some Instagram questions uh, that some of our followers asked, as well as some questions that are unrelated to what you do, um, just wondering if there's anything else you'd like to share with any of our listeners. Maybe, do you, were you thinking like tips, tricks? Yeah, just anything else, Nicole, you'd like our audience to know. I think The most important thing when it comes to nutrition is not to overthink it and not to get caught up in the media and diet trends. It is not that complicated. Listen to your body, slow down, take a breath, um, enjoy the foods that make you feel good and move your body in a way that makes you feel good. It's really that simple. That's some great advice. So just, on Instagram, uh, someone asked best ways to for vegetarians or vegans to keep their iron levels up. 
Yeah, that's a great question. There are actually a ton of really good vegetarian and vegan sources of iron. So tofu is a great source of iron, certain nuts and seeds, dark leafy greens. I've also recently put a post up on my personal Instagram about iron. So that's a great place to go as well, which I'll share my <laughs> handle, I'm sure, at the end of this episode. One of the things about plant-based iron is we call this non-heme iron, and it's just not as readily absorbed as our animal-based iron, so the iron that we get from meat or any sort of other animal sources like cheese or dairy or eggs. So when you're consuming plant-based iron, a good strategy is to pair it with a food that has vitamin C in it as well because that will enhance the absorption. So you can get vitamin C from things like strawberries, bell peppers, oranges, broccoli, those sorts of foods. The other Great. thing that you can do is avoid eating your iron-rich foods with any inhibitors. Things like coffee would be an inhibitor for iron. So maybe have your coffee separate from whatever else you're having. Interesting. Yeah, That's great. Thank you. Like <laughs> okay, I know we've already ta talked a little bit about this, but another Instagrammer asked, what's a good balance of eating well and treating yourself? I think the balance is slightly different for everyone, but at the end of the day, as long as you're including some vegetables and fruits and you don't feel like you're depriving yourself, you probably have a good balance. So you know, while you may not physically feel good, as Natasha mentioned, if you're always, you know, if you're getting the burger and fries um, all the time or something like that, there's nothing wrong with enjoying it once in a while. Or if you're on vacation for a week and you want to just have lots of margaritas and lots of <laughs> fun foods, it's totally fine. There used to be this kind of notion of the 80-20 rule. Um, so if anyone is really looking for hard numbers, you can always use that as a bit of a gauge. But I think it's really just about being intuitive and being in tune with your body. You will find that if you're eating lots of some of those higher fat, higher sugar foods a lot, that your body's going to start to crave those more nourishing foods naturally. I love it. I like the 80-20 rule. <laughs> yeah, I have not heard that yeah. before. People always are looking for numbers to follow. I try and be very intuitive with my approach, but I know that, you know, it's it's easier to have some sort of a visual cue. I Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then you can gauge it and you don't feel like you're A, not treating yourself enough and B, you're not treating yourself too much, I guess, if that's even a thing. But yeah. For sure. I mean, you can also look at how you treat yourself in other aspects of your life. So for example, do I get my nails done once a week? maybe I'll also, you know, treat myself to a special something once a week. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, you know, yeah. Gauge, gauge it like that and just think of it less in terms of what I should or should not consume and more in terms of how, how do I want to even finance my money? Maybe I have this much money a week that I want to spend on food out because I'm trying to save up for something. And you can even use those as, as kind of helpful benchmarks. That's great. Those are great tips. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so a couple of just closing questions here. So when you were a little girl, what did you want to be when you grew up? I was thinking about this one, and <laughs> I had the most Canadian ambitions when I was a child. I wanted to be a Zamboni driver. Yes, <laughs> I, I love that. I love, I love like cleaning and organizing things, and I just loved how someone got to go and ride on this awesome machine and clean the ice in between. 
Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Did you play sports? Did you did you skate? Oh gosh, no, I'm I'm terrible at sports, but I I just remember like my brother played hockey and I would go and I was like that's what I'm going to do when I grow up. <laughs> that's great. My question for you is who inspires you and what female leaders do you look up to? I would say um very probably cliche but my mom inspires me a lot. She is probably the strongest, most dedicated, um hard work hard working woman that I know and so every day she continues to inspire me just with her motivation and her drive. Another female leader I really look up to is Michelle Obama. I love her book. I have seen her the becoming documentary. I listen to like podcasts that she's featured on. I think she has just such an incredible story and sets an amazing example for young women and girls everywhere. She is so motivating and she is just an incredible woman. I love that. I want to actually read more of Michelle Obama's stuff. Uh, okay, and if you could pick one book for everyone to read, what book would you choose? This is an easy one. If there's anyone out there who has not read the Harry Potter series, go out Me. there and read it. Me. Me. You have yeah. the time. If you're in Ontario, we're in a lockdown. Get the books. Get the audiobooks. And last question, Nicole. Where can people find you and connect with you? So the best place to find me and connect with me is on Instagram. And I am enjoyyourfoodrd. So that's my Instagram handle. So you can find me on there. You can DM me. You can watch me eat food and listen to my cat in the background <laughs> yes we had a nice visitor this evening what's, what's its name again clementine thank you so much nicole for being on the podcast we really appreciate all of your wisdom and advice that you shared with us no worries thank yes you thank so you much so so much <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you want to keep hanging out with us, come say hi on Instagram or Twitter at leadherlifepod. Or if you have a question that you want us to answer, send us an email at leadherlifepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep leading your life. Okay, bye.